The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? They're going fine. Nothing much happening. Enjoying this last little bit of sun in London. More sun than we've had all summer. Yeah, the last blistering week of sunshine here with highs of 29 and 30, so it's quite a luxurious final week. And for the Americans out there, that's like 85. 88, something like that, translating into Fahrenheit, but I'm not entirely sure what it is. I've never been able to do the translation being a Canadian. And you probably don't know what feet and inches are either then. Well, interestingly, in Canada, we tend to use feet in regards to our height. So I actually know that quite well. So I'm six, three and three quarters, which is weird because we use the metric system. And what about weight? Are you stones or pounds or kilos? So we are, again, metric, we are kilos, but we actually refer to ourselves in pounds as well. So I know my weight in pounds. But not in stone either, because in the UK it's stone, which is just this brand new invention. And again, for any Americans out there, it's 14 pounds to a stone. So it's not even a particularly easy number to calculate. So speaking of weight, and I know we've been talking about weight recently. We were talking about our diets the other day and Brandon, you just were like casually, I kind of half eat paleo and I've been doing it for years and we didn't get a chance to talk all the way about that, but I'm so curious. And so I thought it would be a good question to ask you today. What is kind of paleo and what's the story there? I probably almost 12 years ago, I had broken up with my girlfriend at the time and I was out of work. I was overweight and I was eating a lot of scones. So I was a huge fan of scones. I'd have scones with jam and butter and all sorts of things. So it was just like a trifecta of depression, essentially. So at that point, I moved back to Toronto. And for the first time in my life, I gone back to the gym as I usually do. But in this case, I got a trainer. And the trainer, he was an ex-football player. I got back in shape. And at some point, he said to me, look, Brandon, you're getting back in shape, which is great. You're building muscle, but you've still got the beer belly. And if you want to get rid of the beer belly you need to go on the paleo diet to make it happen. So I was like, paleo, what's that? (laughs) Yeah, now everybody knows, but (laughs) 12 years ago, not so, like cutting edge, yeah. So it was funny because he he kept harassing me about it. I didn't want to do it. So he he kept on me and on me and on me. I'm like, fine, fine, I'll do your paleo thing. So then we did it and I took it seriously. So literally in that first two to three weeks, it was full strict paleo, which is like vegetables, meat, and like, nothing else, essentially. No uh, carbohydrates whatsoever. So within two weeks, I dropped like a ridiculous amount of weight and went into that state they call ketosis, I think they call it, or something like that. And I could really feel it because my energy level had tanked for those couple of weeks and I could feel it. So I think my revelation was, A, this actually works. B, it's entirely unsustainable. Nobody can live like that for their life. I mean, it's ridiculous. So I was like, okay, fine. So what do I do now? And I kind of organically morphed into my own version. And I've done it ever since. And I've actually been paleo-inspired <laughs> for probably, probably 12, 13 years now. Have you had a scone since? Interestingly, no. <laughs> really? Not a single one? Not like ever going to any British heritage site with the scones just sitting there? 
I have not eaten a scone in 13 years. (laughs) I feel so sorry for you. (laughs) Well, I think you get past the point of being attracted to it as well. Like, I I don't think about it. Like, I'll I'll see cookies and pastries and whatever. I don't feel like I'm denying myself, which is the way it should be, I guess, if it's going to be part of your, your lifestyle. And I just guess because you liked them so much, although maybe it's like there's some old emotional scars as well, the bad breakup and the scones. So what do we have as an episode today? We have got an exciting one. So we've got a two-part leadership series, and this is part number one, which is leadership teams and the COO role. And this one we're calling Building Up and Switching Out with Maddie Fox. And we'll talk to Maddie in a few minutes here. And I guess what I wanted to start with, Bethany, was my disaster timeline. You've got your funding. You've got roughly a two-year period to provide your metric set for the next round. You're going off to hire leadership team members. You make a leadership hire, and six months into that hire, you're getting subtle cues that something's askew here, but you can't really put your finger on it specifically. You need to give that person time to bed in and kind of do their thing. And you get to month number nine of their duration, and you're having serious misgivings at that point. You're like, okay, I need to bear down here in terms of performance and coaching and give this person all the tools I can possibly give them to help them to succeed at this point. And for month number nine, you give that six months, you're sitting in month number 15 at that point. And at month number 15, you've made the decision, this person needs to go essentially, you need to exit them from the company. And then that takes you three months, which pushes you into month number 18. And at month number 18, the person is actually gone. And now you're recruiting for the new hire, which takes you another six months. And you've now just killed your 24 months. (laughs) And I feel like this happens quite frequently to companies. And when you lose an entire cycle of a function, which is whatever it is, sales, marketing, customer success, product engineering, what have you, it is hugely damaging to the company, hugely damaging to your progress. It's almost like a twofold problem. A, you're not getting what you need. And B, you're getting what you don't need, which is some drag effect on the company and also morale impact and and so on. So just with that disaster timeline set up, I'm just wondering what your experience has been, Bethany, and any any flavorings around that, or even if you maybe disagree with it as well? No, I don't disagree. I think it's great if you can recognize it a bit earlier and not lose the whole 24 months. I've also seen the ability to rebound a bit through bringing in interims. So you don't actually have to wait for the whole six month or 12 month cycle to play itself out. You can at least pretty immediately start to stave the bleeding where interims really can be fantastic, particularly proven experienced ones that are well referenced in your network. Otherwise it is a 24 months process and it can be pretty tough for everyone. I guess my question back is if you realize at month six or month nine, have you ever seen giving the extra six months work or is it just much better to cut your losses early? Yeah. I mean, I struggle with this so much, to be honest, because I feel, especially because of the intimacy of the leadership team, you've gotten to know this person, you're actively working with them and perhaps you're even line manage them as well. And I feel like I want to give them every possible opportunity to succeed, given the fact that we hired them in the first place, we believed in them, they have skills that, that matched what we needed. And I feel this almost obligation, I guess, to give them all that I can to help them to make it happen. And to answer your question, I've not been successful. (laughs) So whether that's my failing, the company's failing is not clear to me. If I was to make just a bold recommendation, I think you're right. I think pulling the plug as early as possible just makes more sense. It's like if it's not working early on, then on balance, you're probably selling the company up for more success by pulling the plug earlier in that case. Yeah. I think the reason why it's really hard is 
I don't know if we've talked about this much, but it's something that definitely I feel like I talk to lots of people about is the more senior you are, the less your functional expertise matters and your functional expertise becomes the ability to lead that function. And it's your leadership skills. And rather than like, do you know how yourself to generate leads isn't the point. Your point is like, do you know what a good lead gen person looks like to build out the rest? I'm just using marketing as a the first example that came to my head rather than anything else. And so much of a reason, I think, why leaders don't work out is down to what people call soft skills. And then we say we shouldn't call soft skills. And so, and I completely agree and I don't want to sound cliched, but when I was a sales leader, I used to say that it's like so hard to transplant a salesperson. And it's like, you know, you just don't know if you're going to transplant them and they're going to flourish. And now looking at execs, it's the same thing. It's like, you can be an amazing exec in one environment, but you just don't transplant well to a new one. And that comes down to shared values, shared leadership styles, and shared vision. So I guess it's around like, can you coach that? But if somebody fundamentally leads in a different way that doesn't work with your business or does not actually have the truly shared values, I'm not sure you can coach that, which is where we focus on whether or not they're doing a good job, but doing a good job is can you align your team around a vision and get stuff done without disrupting like the rest of the business? And that's a lot harder than you haven't hit your target. Yeah, no, I agree. It's almost like a fundamental deal breaker. And it almost goes back to the hiring process itself, which is how do you actually vet for values and what's important to the business in that sense and making sure that you're finding individuals that, that meet those values in that case. Do you have any recommendations or practicalities around that, do you think? Because I feel like this is also something that's quite hard to discern, to be honest, right? It's one thing to discern skill sets, which is relatively straightforward, but ascertaining values, especially during a hiring process, is incredibly challenging, I think. It really is, particularly since companies' values all sound good and reasonable. And so you're not going to be like... No, I don't believe in collaboration. That is that is not my shtick. <laughs> yeah. And... Also, like the generally like kind of human values. And so unless you're dealing with a sociopath, like people have them. And so it's a level of really understanding the true values of the company, like the ones that you actually see operating, whether or not they're the ones that you say are your values. And so being as a hiring team manager, like really understanding what matters to you, probably looking back at some of your fails and analyzing why those have been misalignments. And so knowing what it is that is number one and then testing for it. So my number one flag as to whether or not there would be a good hire is if at the end of the interview, they acknowledge the mess they have left behind. So either the takeaway cup they arrived with or the glass or the coffee cup that we've given them. If they just get up and like, thanks and leave, and they have all of this shit behind them, I like, yeah, they're not my person. Sorry, you do the the coffee cup test. Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) I'm not sure what to make of this because like I read one of these things on LinkedIn or somebody's post around this coffee cup test and what have you. I'm like, oh, really? I'm not the only one. Yeah. It seems so um, artificial, like, or just so like hackneyed. There must be a better way. (laughs) Well, so I mean, I didn't come across it because of reading an article. I came across it because I interviewed a lot of salespeople and then I would notice 
And then I would hire them anyhow, because I didn't think it was a thing. I mean, part of it is probably, again, a gendered thing, because I feel like all I do is pick up glasses and cups all day long. (laughs) (laughs) And somebody who just notices that they shouldn't leave their glasses behind. And it's a certain sense of entitlement as well. Like, oh, well, somebody else is going to deal with this shit. Whereas somebody who actually cares and thinks about their environment and thinks about other people, for me, is a value that matters. And it's a really simple test. I mean, I guess we could wrap it up in responsibility or you know, cleanliness, but it's more care for other people because who's going to clean it up if it's not that person? It's going to be me getting the room ready for the next meeting. Okay, that makes sense. The other one that I always go back to, when this is kind of a, a throwback to the James Mitra podcast, but I truly believe back channel referencing and getting real answers from people can be very helpful to understand what this person is all about and how they operate and their ways of working and their behaviors. Getting contacts where they're willing to talk to you properly around this individual and you, you can actually ask some of the tough questions and actually get some real answers feels like such a, a critical thing, especially in scale-ups, I think, to you know, ascertain who is this person, how do they operate, how do they behave, are they actually truly empathetic, do they actually collaborate in ways that are useful? All those key questions that are hard to determine up front. And have they built a good team? Have they retained a good team? <laughs> A lot of it is around the people in that team they're building. So why don't we park it here and move on to our conversation with Maddie Fox and let's do that. I am delighted to welcome Maddie Fox to the operations room today. Maddie is a super experienced people leader and works very well with CEOs and COOs to partner to build out exceptional leadership teams. Welcome, Maddie. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I have so many questions for you, but the one that absolutely leapt out at me to begin with is about job titles and whether or not they actually matter. So you'll probably have founders who have C titles. Then you'll have had a bit of the graduates or early job people coming in who ended up on the leadership team or the management team kind of by default and maybe are at a head of level. Then you'll have somebody who comes in, not looking at salespeople always, but sales leaders do tend to have inflated titles. So you'll have like a really big title for your first sales leader. And so suddenly you have a combination of ego, history, and the title doesn't actually reflect the experience level. And you've raised a bunch of money. And I'll maybe add a bit to that because I feel like this question of leveling is a very important one for transparency purposes because ultimately at the end of the day, it is incredibly important for the business to really understand at the VP level, here's what we expect. This is what we need from a skill standpoint and competency point of view. Here's what we're expecting in terms of leadership. And here's what the difference is between that and the head of level. And by the way, the compensation of the VP level band is this and the equity is that. So it feels like that level of clarity and transparency for the organization ultimately is a very useful tool to make sure you're shining a light on all the gaps and kind of the inherent quirks and unfairness that actually has crept its way into your existing mishmash of whatever you have. It's really kind of a question of how important is that and how aggressively should you target that from the outset? Yeah, so I think the transparency piece and what people are doing and the expectation at different levels is hugely important. I think ending up with a leadership team that has different titles for the right reasons is not a bad thing. So I do see sometimes teams trying to really equal that out, or this is our decision-making team, so everybody should be C-level. Or I think 
that's kind of a mispath to follow because there's no reason why your leadership team shouldn't have different levels of experience and therefore titles to match that. If they're the most senior person in that function, then they need to be at that leadership table to help you make a decision. What you need to be a bit clearer about is what is your roles and responsibility for that leadership team? What do they focus on? What's their purpose? What do they not focus on, which is equally important? And how do they do that? So that stuff is, again, more important than titles. And I don't think leadership teams need to have same level of experience or the same titles in order to be high-functioning leadership teams. But I do think you're right, Brandon, about the transparency around what does it mean to be at each level and your bandings accordingly to that. I think that's hugely important. Another thing that definitely happens at the same moment where you have done the bands, it's clear who's in which, you have bands attached to job titles, and you have a couple people with C-level titles who are now more VP level. It's always a hard conversation. It's hard for both people. It's hard to get your ego around it. Ideas on how to make that more palatable and successful? Or do you think that it basically is the beginning of that person's departure, no matter how it's treated? An exit or a, it's time to do a different role, or you've outgrown this title conversation becomes a lot easier if there has been honesty and transparency about that person's roles and responsibility and how that grows and changes over time, as well as how they're viewed as a leader. I know that can be a bit challenging after the fact, but and so sometimes it takes CEOs to make a couple of mistakes with that to go, ah, right, if I don't attend to these things earlier on in our relationship, it makes it sticky and hard at the end. I mean, I think also, you know, this podcast is presumably going out to lots of leaders who are thinking about and reflecting on their own career. There's some responsibility on the individual to really invest in having the self-awareness about where they are, where their strengths are, how the business is changing, and what that means for them and where they are. Some leaders will be able to grow with the business and some leaders won't. Some of those that don't necessarily grow with the business may be really good at a certain stage. And actually, the sooner you get to understand where your strengths are in that regard, you understand what's the right kind of next move for your career. Yeah, and actually, this brings up an interesting question, which is, when you think about the responsibility of the organization to enable that individual, whoever that is, to really grow their career and grow their skill set and competency, when you think about that company obligation versus what the personal obligation of the individual is to be proactive and to reach out, irrespective of the company's support or lack thereof, how do you view that balance between the two? Because oftentimes in scale-up companies, there tends to be, in my experience, very little support provided, I think, to that individual to really grow their skill set. And it's almost expected that the individual by themselves somehow is going to figure it out and figure out how to scale themselves. And I'm just curious how you think about that balance. Yeah, it feels like that approach is a bit kind of sink or swim. It goes in the the bucket of that hit the ground running that we love to say to leaders, which is basically, you're on your own, you go and work it out. And hopefully you've brought the right level of experience with you. If you want to be successful as an organization, there's a big responsibility on the organization to set the right frameworks, to have the right conversations. But in terms of actually pushing development, I think that sits with the individual. And I think that can often get confused as who kind of has the bigger responsibility here. 
But I think there's also an environmental piece, right? Often, and this isn't just at C-level or VP level, this can be at any level in the organization. The organization grows much quicker than the individual. And that can sometimes be really challenging to keep pace with that. Especially, I don't know, say that you were there right from the beginning and you did a bit of everything because that's what required. And then as things start to get more specialized, suddenly you with all these sort of generalist skills and knowledge of the organization doesn't bring the right set for the right skill set for the organization. So there's something about that personal responsibility of pushing to have the conversations and keep pace with that as much as they can, or knowing when it's time to go and get some experience elsewhere. I've worked with lots of people in startups whose only experience is startup and they've grown within organizations. That's a very narrow field of view when it comes to thinking about what might happen down the line or being faced with something that you haven't seen before and being able to go, oh yeah, this is kind of like something else I've seen. So I know how to deal with it. When you think about setting that individual up for success and in particular a CEO for success, what are the two or three things that you would think about, Maddie, in terms of making sure that happens? Roles and responsibilities has got to be one of those things in there, right? And really clear roles and responsibilities. I think when we talk about this, we think it's just a job description, right? We've written a clear job description, so that's great. People understand what that is. I think if we take the COO, for example, what I've seen, and I'm sure you can give plenty of other examples too, but if the COO often plays that sort of role with the CEO to fill some of those gaps, perhaps that the CEO doesn't, right? So that you can end up with really broad looking roles because of that, like what's the CEO's focus versus what's the COO's focus. And having a really good relationship and constant dialogue about what that means and how that ebbs and changes is roles and responsibilities, right? It's not just we write it down on a job description and then some point later we go, oh, hang on, we're in conflict about something. What's that about? Oh, because I'm stepping on your toes or you're stepping on my toes. Or So that's a continual conversation, I would say. And I think also in setting up any leader to join a leadership team for success, so there's this sort of clarity over roles and responsibility. We've already talked about what's the leadership team's focus, what's their purpose, what do they work, work on, et cetera, et cetera. So understanding that not just at an intellectual level, but actually how does that work on a day-to-day basis? And then I think the other thing is about how do you work? Like as an individual, Beth, you mentioned before we got started today that both you and Brandon are introverts. I mentioned I'm an extrovert. Like what do we know about our working styles and how can we connect on that? And I've used a tool to support people on that before Sometimes it can be, you know, easily done in a conversation of, I prefer to be communicated in this way. Or I had worked with a CEO who was really brilliant at writing out, here's how you work with me as a way of starting that conversation so that others could share with them how they work. So we focus a lot on the CEO-COO relationship, but I think the one that in some ways can be trickier is the COO relationship with everybody else in the team and the roles and responsibilities. Because I think oftentimes leadership teams can feel like they have two bosses with the CEO and the COO, particularly if the COO is left to run everything internally, whether it's a dotted line or not. How do you suggest dealing with that area where there can be confusion? Yeah. And again, I think the roles and responsibility conversation needs to happen on a sort of one-on-one level, but also on a team level so that we're really clear about what people are working on. And, 
you know, reviewing that on a regular basis. So what's your cadence as a leadership team to meet, see what you're working on and see how that's progressing and who's responsible for what. So I think there's a collective responsibility there to be clear on that. I also think it can really depend what the COO is responsible for. So do they have people and finance under them or do you have a CFO? Did they have people and finance under them, but now you have a CFO and a people person? So I can imagine it's quite challenging sometimes for COOs as they have to let go of their Legos as you get more leaders come in and that role ebbs and changes. What I've often seen is that role is about being the glue for the leadership team. And so it can be really important for the COO to make really great personal relationships, right? Not just on a, you do this, I do that basis, but actually how do we get to know each other much better so that we can challenge each other more easily, that we can give each other feedback, that we can actually discuss what some of those tensions might be rather than leaving them to sort of fester. Yeah, I think that's, more easily said than done, particularly in a British culture and a British company, at least as an American coming in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. No, I can understand that. And I think, you know, one of the challenges I've really seen is when there's a lot of change going on in leadership teams that they don't have a chance to stop and say, oh, we've got a new person. How do we really welcome them into the way that we work? How do we get to know each other again? And I think it's really important for the leadership cadence, if you like, is to have regular points in the year where you go and have dinner together, where you have your business strategy planning time, but you also have time to work on yourselves as a team. And it's taking the opportunity out of the business to be able to do that so that you can start that conversation. And then it really is up to those individuals to really drive that relationship sort of in between that, I think. You said before that organizations generally grow faster than individuals. So when it comes to this question of when leaders tap out, can you give us a bit of a sense of uh, how you view that? Because I feel like this is a, a bit of a cornerstone of scale-ups in some respects. And it's not talked about a lot, to be honest. Everyone talks about the new hire, the successful onboarding, and there's very few podcasts and few articles written about the opposite, which is the organization's grown faster than the person, the person now needs to leave, and the question of how you tap out in a way that actually makes sense. Yes. Well, in a utopian world, <laughs> you develop a culture that means that those conversations can be had in a really open way, right? And helping leaders to be really self-aware about where their contribution is. I think one of the things that can be really challenging around that is often when hiring people, we think they're going to be there forever. And we're looking for that person who's going to be there for the long term versus what is the problem we need to solve and how long is that going to take? So I've got an example sort of outside of startups, a friend of mine who is a, she comes in and does tra business transformation, right? And she's got a project. They might say it's going to be two and a half, three years. She does it in 18 months. Wow. Well, that's really successful, right? Because actually your goal was to transform the business. You've done it. You've met all the goals. It's time to move on. And sometimes on both sides, we can hang on to a relationship a little longer than we should. So back to that sort of onboarding piece is really thinking about what did I hire this person for? And yes, that may ebb and change over time, but coming back to that in terms of has this person met it? 
I think as a leader as well, like if you're thinking about your own development, it's getting really, I come back to that point I made earlier, getting really clear about what your skill set is and what you offer and what you bring can help you to realize, oh, actually, I've done my time at this organization and I'm now starting to go, oh, I'm reaching a few too many edges here and this is not my zone. It's time to either have someone come in above me or to think about moving on to a different organization. Which sounds great in theory. The reality of stock options and often four-year vesting plans mean that you're sometimes either incentivized to stay longer than you should, or if you do everything in 18 months instead of four years, you don't actually get an equivalent value out of the value you've given the business. That's a really good point, Beth. And I mean, there's a structural piece in there, maybe that we actually as organizations, we would do well to kind of rethink perhaps how we've done that because actually people staying longer than is right either for them or the business can have a really negative impact on the business. One that's much more costly than perhaps you accelerating their vesting and giving them their stocks and having a really good leaving. So I think in those situations, as an HR person, I might advise being creative about how you help somebody exit, like what really matters to them. And you often know that from when someone comes in, right? Because when you negotiate a contract with a leader, you will find out what's really important to them. So some of them will negotiate the bonus. Some of them will be looking at the base pay. Some of them will be looking at options, you know, and those questions will give you an indication of what's important at the end of the relationship. And I think working with someone to help them exit in a a way, because it may have been initiated by the organization, right? It often is rather than necessarily the individual. I guess I'm thinking the other way. Like it's much easier when it's been initiated by the organization. If the individual is still somebody the organization would like to retain, even if they think they've had enough, (laughs) it's a bit harder to negotiate it that way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. And think the same, but in reverse. What does the organization really want and how can you work with them to give it in a way that makes sense for both of you? And I have seen that happen too, where people have said, right, I really think my time is done. So if I was to leave, what is it that you need from me in order to make that happen? And I think those conversations can be had. And look, I get that it's completely relational dependent, right? Because you you may not have that honest and open relationship fully with the people that you're working with. But I think you can apply some of the same principle, especially if you know what the organization really wants from you. When you think about, usually the leadership team itself will report into the COO or the CEO. And in those cases where you have that relationship and those one-to-ones and you have that trust because you worked actively together on a day-to-day basis, any kind of practical considerations or practical tips for either the CEO or the COO in terms of how to ensure that you achieve that right outcome, which is the right balance for the organization where if somebody has in fact tapped out that either that self-awareness is kicked in or they're, they're brought along that pathway in either event that CEO or CEO has to do a good job of kind of guiding that down a pathway. So any, any practical tips as part of that? Well, it's good to talk it through with someone who can give you a different side to the story, right? I would say absolutely. That's the role of a senior HR person. You may not have that senior HR person. So if you're a tag team between a COO and a CEO, EO is how do you kind of really challenge yourself to have like, oh, I was planning on doing it this way. And the other might go, oh, I think, oh, let's kind of adjust that, right? 
And taking the advice externally if you need it as well. And I don't just mean in the hitting the legal points, right? Because that's an easy question to solve. And you can ask some external resource, a lawyer, you may have an HR person who can give you that. But it's more about how you think through what that conversation is going to look like. It's about having an adult conversation. It's about having some transparency. In my experience, often when the conversation is started, the individual is like, yeah, I can see that too. But if you've sort of started that in a very tell way versus a questioning or coaching style way of doing it, then that can become quite combative quite quickly. Yeah. And then in that respect, what does a grace exit look like? So if you had to describe what good looks like in terms of a phenomenal exit of a senior leader of the business, how would you describe that? It starts with the organization having a good relationship with that individual. You know, we've come to a group place about this. So whether that's the CEO and that leader coming to a good place about the exit itself before you go and announce to the rest of the organization. So let's say it starts with that being in a good place. I think the other thing that's really important is celebrating. So often the reason a leader is tapped out is they've done a phenomenal job to this point, but the business has changed fundamentally and they don't necessarily have the skill set or the experience to take it on to the next part. Or the energy. Yes. Yeah, or the energy. Yes, absolutely. And so it can become a little bit tricky if something has started to break down and that's what's led to the conversation, right? Something started to get, whether it's breakdown in the relationship or there are targets not being met or, you know, there's something there that kind of makes it difficult. And that's just your indicator about the fact that it's time to perhaps move on or time to move this person on. What happened all before that, right? Because you hired them for a reason. They've come in and done a great job. And it's just so important to celebrate that that was right for them. And it's something different that's going to take us to the next part. And so does that also lead into, it's quite a hard time for a leadership team to lose a member that has been a highly contributing member, then generally you, sometimes you have a replacement in place, but sometimes you don't. So you'll have like a period of instability but then you stabilize with that missing person, then you'll introduce a new person in and then need to rebuild the team again. Any ways to handle that period of transition well? Yeah, I think that's really challenging because who does it in the meantime, right? So what's the leader that's left and who picks up in the meantime? And those are really important questions to answer before you exit a leader is to really kind of think about and engage with those people who are potentially going to take on the responsibility in the meantime, being very clear about what your plan is to hire someone new. All of those things need to sort of form part of your sort of initial comms plan. And the COO is likely the person who will end up with a lot of those responsibilities to our point earlier of like COO has to flip into whatever shape is needed for the business. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And what does that mean for their team? And what help might you need in the interim? You know, it can take quite a long time to hire senior leaders. And I think that that's often not fully taken into account. And so is there some more support you need in the short term that is easier to hire in or to bring in a contractor or a fractional person to kind of support in the meantime? But I think it then also comes back to what's your leadership team cadence of getting together, having an opportunity to actually talk about the exit, what that means, what people are concerned about, 
everybody might get it on a logical or intellectual level, but of course we're going to have some feelings about it, right? And if we don't discuss that or don't have an opportunity to work some of those things through, that can also kind of create tensions down the line. And then, of course, when you bring that new person in, there's the readjustment of the roles and responsibilities again and bringing that person into, okay, so this is how we operate as a team. This is what we do. This is how people like to work. And, you know, it comes back to that sort of thing I was saying earlier of getting to know people personally, but also spending some time on working out who you are as a team. And then when it comes to the organization itself and the culture of the company, not just the leadership team, but the wider company in this case, what is the tactical, I guess, the best things to do and to think about to ensure that post somebody's departure that the organization is able to move on and any comms tactics or anything else that you would think about to make that work well? And how much do you share? (laughs) It's always the question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. And you know what? People will always read between the lines. So whatever you do share, people have a tendency to kind of fill some things in. I think this really comes back to the celebration point. So we're making sure that even if there is some animosity or there was some failing or there was actually celebrating the good things about that person with the rest of the organization, being really clear about the plan. With the best will in the world, people definitely want to know why that person's leaving. They want to know that that person has been treated with dignity. And then quite quickly, they'll move on to, yeah, but what happens now? Because it might well impact their daily work. We see this a lot with any level of person who's leaving in the organization is like, well, hang on a second, but that person gone, they normally do this for me, or I normally get this support. What's that going to mean now? And so having both the reflection, thank you, celebration, treat the person with dignity and thinking about then what happens. I think both those things are really important to be able to answer when you, especially when you go to the rest of the organization. I think we could talk all afternoon. I still have more questions, but unfortunately, we're rapidly running out of time. You have so much insight to share. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more, what are the best ways to find you? Best way to find me on LinkedIn. And there's a little bit in there about what my sort of my own organization does around leadership development, coaching, that sort of thing on there. Perfect. It'll all be in our speaker notes or episode notes for anybody who'd like to have a look. And then finally, Maddie, final question. How many times can I say finally in one sentence? Uh, (laughs) We've covered a lot of topics today. If our listeners are only going to remember one thing, what's the one takeaway they should have? I think there's something about the more senior you get in the organization, the more responsibility you have as an individual to understand your skill set, your strengths, the way you work, the impact you can have, right? When a leader says anything, that could be an idea in a meeting. It could just be a flyaway comment to someone at the water cooler. That's taken so much more seriously than anybody else's. And so the impact you can have on a business is huge, right? And that's positive and negative. So doing your own work I think is hugely important if you want to be successful as a leader. And that could mean therapy, that could mean coaching, that could mean your own sort of development. You know, it could be about asking people for feedback about you. There is lots of components of that. But I think, yeah, if there's one thing is as a senior leader, you have responsibility to do your own work and 
show up as your best selves. Totally agree. <laughs> like 100 billion percent agree. Thanks, you, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great observation and probably a good way to, to end the podcast here. So, Maddie Fox, thank you for joining us on the Operations Room. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment. And we will see you next week. 